invite you, excuse me, invite you to take your Bible tonight and open it to Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, we are going to be looking tonight at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Uh, the, our text begins with the word, therefore. And to really uh, get an, a sense of the context, we really ought to read from chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we don't, I'm not going to take the time to do it tonight, but what I would like you to do is uh, at least go to uh, chapter 2. Well, actually, I'm gonna, we're going to look at, I'm just going to hit a few verses just so we get the flow, okay, as we get started tonight. So, um, Paul... We're going to have a very brief summary of the book of Romans. Uh, book of, the book of Romans is fascinating. There's, there's, um, the vast majority of the book is taken up with theology. Uh, just good, good uh, gripping gospel theology. And then Paul uh, builds uh, or shows how that theology is to, um, to saturate our life and motivate our life. And that the Christian life is built on, again, the objective truths of what God has accomplished in Christ. So the book of Romans, so Paul writes um, his really, the, the book there he deals most thoroughly with the theology of the gospel. And verse 16, I'm just going to score through some verses, you can follow me. 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that's going to be a critically important word in the book of uh, Romans. It's not to everyone who works. To everyone who obeys, but to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And uh, that's the main theme, particularly the first eight chapters. And so Paul then is going to begin showing why this is necessary, that the righteousness that saves has to be a righteousness received by grace. It cannot be received by what we do. And he starts on verse 18, chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that... Uh, he wants us to see the problem. The problem is that men are, by nature, unrighteous. If you go to, so he deals with the Gentile sins, particularly in the rest of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, goes right to the Jews and say, you uh, have no excuse, those of you who judge, because the law speaks to you too. If you go to um, verse 11 of chapter 2. There will be tribulation, uh, on verse 9, I'm sorry, on verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor for peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality, for all have sinned, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearer's of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So here's one way to be justified before God. Keep the law. All of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself and do this from the day you were born and, uh, and you will then uh, keep the law and you can, be, you can be justified. Well, he's going to show later on that even that wouldn't work because of this thing called the, our, our relationship with Adam and the sin that we're under because of that. But he's just closing the door to righteousness by law-keeping. And so if you look at chapter 3, 
The very, um, look at verses 19 to 20, excuse me, um, chapter 3, I'm in verse, yeah, 19 and 20. So no one is righteous, no one does good, not even one, verse 11. Now we know, verse 19, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul just closes the door on any attempt to justify yourself or, have, or hope that God will justify you but because you're a good person. Because you've kept certain religious rules. It simply doesn't work. It can't work. The law didn't come to do that. The law came to, to shut up your mouth and my mouth, right? So every mouth may be stopped. So nobody says, well, yeah, but I, no. Not under the law. Uh, the law says uh, we have sinned. And so righteousness can't come that way. So how does righteousness then come? Well, that's the good news of the gospel. Verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, uh, just proving his point that the righteousness that saves is, uh, has always come by faith as a gift, not by works, uh, and thereby merited. That's the truth of justification. It is given freely as a gift to those who believe. And, there, and then we come to chapter 5. And So if you join me at chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, these are profound truths. Uh, they might be difficult for us to grasp, so we need your help. We need your spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to uh, devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching tonight and by the Holy Spirit. 
find that uh, this is, we hear our Savior speaking to us and comforting us and, and calling us to himself. Lord, may we hear this word tonight as your good news, your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The title of my message tonight is Justification and Joy. Justification and Joy. We've been looking at a classic a biblical text, gospel text uh, from time to time in our Sunday evening services, and tonight we come to um, one, of the, one of the wonderful, wonderful uh, gospel texts, Romans chapter 5. If you remember last week, we, uh, we studied Philippians 1 verse 6, where Paul says, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. And we noted last week the wonder, the beauty of the objective realities of the gospel, that uh, the most important and the best things about being a Christian, the most important things are not the things that you are feeling or thinking or doing. The most beautiful, precious things about the Christian life are the things that God is thinking and God is feeling and God is doing, things that God has done. What matters most is not all our prayers and sighs and tears, but Jesus' prayers and sighs and tears on our behalf for us. Because those objective realities are unfading realities. Our feeling uh, can go up and down. Our thinking can, uh, right, sometimes we're, we're thinking right and sometimes we are thinking wrong. Uh, the, uh, the subjective realities of the Christian life ebb and flow, but the, the gospel, objective gospel truths stand as a firm foundation. And that's the foundation of our joy. Uh, does not mean that the subjective experiences of the Christian life are unimportant. So what we think and do and feel does matter. But, but the point we made last week is that we simply want to say that none of those things are the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news isn't, I feel a certain way. The good news is what God has done outside of us for Christ Jesus. However... In Scripture, we clearly see that God intends those objective truths to be the fountainhead for Christian experience. That that true Christian experience is encouraged in the Bible, rooted in, based on, growing out of the foundation of gospel truth. And and that's what we're going to look at tonight. How Christian experience flows from the, the objective truths of the gospel. And so our main idea tonight... That here in Romans chapter 5, we see that uh, the objective reality of salvation, specifically the doctrine of justification, is, is meant to explode into our life in an experience, a subjective experience of Christian joy. So the objective reality is meant um, to be applied and experienced as joy. So the two main points, first is just the objective gospel truth, and then the subjective application, and we'll look at the three rejoicings we find in verses 1 through 11, rejoicing in hope, rejoicing in suffering, rejoicing in God. Let's just begin then with the objective gospel truth. I'd like to start tonight by asking you a question. Uh, What do you think God wants from you? If, I, if you had a little piece of paper and I said, okay, I want you to take 15 seconds and just write out your answer, what would you write? What does God want from you? Maybe you've never really thought of that question before, but I think most of us um, 
if we've not thought specifically about that question, we're living our life on an assumption of what we think God wants. So what is it? I think most of us, would, uh, our answers would in some way be a variation of the, of the idea that what God wants most from us is obedience. God wants me to be more patient. God wants me to be more loving and more pure, more content, more thankful. God wants me to be done with my besetting sin. God wants me to be more consistent in my devotions, my prayer life. Uh, God wants me to talk to my neighbors about Jesus. God wants me to forgive someone who's wounded me. See, most of us assume, I think, that what God really wants from us is a better version of ourselves than we are currently displaying. God just wants better, more. Now, while that's true, it's not true the way that we think it is, and it's not the right answer to the question. God does want a better version of us, but you see, the the beauty of the gospel story is that God has committed himself to making you a better version of you. There's going to be, right, you 2.0 in a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to be glorious, and he's committed himself to that. It it cannot fail. So yes, uh, he has chosen you so that you might be holy and blameless in his sight. That's good news for sinners. But see, God has taken on that work. And it's true that God does want obedience, but but there's a deeper truth. He wants something more than obedience. He wants the thing that spawns obedience, that creates obedience. You see, the number one thing that God wants from you is not obedience, but faith. And I say that for several reasons. As you think about Jesus with his disciples, um, he, what is, what's his most common complaint with the disciples? Is it, um, Peter, you're violating the second commandment. Um, John, greed, I mean, you guys are always talking about position and power. Have you, heard, have you never heard, thou shalt not covet, right? That, um, you're, you guys are angry, angry with each other. Thou shalt not kill. Is that what we hear Jesus doing with the disciples? Is that what he's despairing about as he's he's ministering with his disciples? Well, if it is, it didn't get written down. What we find is Jesus going, oh, you of little faith, do you still not believe? You still don't believe? He chastises, woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. If, if the miracles that have been done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have believed and repented in dust and ashes long ago. Jesus' concern was that people did not believe. In John chapter 6, we read some people who came to him to test him, and they asked him, what is the work that God requires us to do? What's the one thing that God most wants from us? The thing that would would be righteousness, the thing that would please him? Remember what Jesus says, verses 28, 29? Jesus says the work that God requires is that you believe in the one whom he has sent. That's the work. 
Because, Hebrews 11 verse 1, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what God, the number one thing God wants from us is not obedience, but you see faith. Because faith spawns obedience and, and spawns love. And, and, but primarily, you see, because faith is casting ourselves on God. Faith is the, is the foundation of, uh, of our righteousness because we receive it freely as a gift and it's the fountain of our joy. God wants us to believe in, in him, in Christ, his son, the work that he's accomplished so deeply that we rejoice. We rejoice. That's, that's just so patently clear from the text. Three times Paul mentions rejoicing in these few verses. And Paul talks as if that were the common experience of every believer. This isn't, this isn't um, you know, the elevated um, classes only for the brightest, uh, the, the best, most spiritual Christians. He's writing Romans 5 verse 1 and talking about we, and he's, as though everybody's included who names the name of Christ. And, and so this is for everybody. We uh, experience the rejoicing of hope, verse 2, and the rejoicing even in suffering, verse 3, and rejoicing in God, verse 11. So what, what God wants from us is a faith that makes us abound with joy and peace in believing, Romans 15, 13. Well, how does that happen? Well, in, uh, here in chapter 5, uh, Paul believes it happens by believing and understanding the doctrine of justification. Uh, that's why he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Uh, since it is not our effort, since it's not our work, since God has done this amazing thing. Um, the truth being, no one is righteous, no one seeks after God, no one does any good, no, not one. But God has manifested his righteousness apart from the law. Through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So justification is meant to be a foundation and a fountain for Christian joy. Well, what is justification? I'm glad you asked. Westminster Shorter Catechism has a nice, concise answer. Question answer 33. Boys and girls, maybe you know this already. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for or on the basis of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Big Answer, and that in one sense is packed with gospel truth, but it's an act of God's free grace where he pardons all of our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus which that has been imputed to us, and we receive it by faith alone. Now, that is meant to be the objective ground then of a believer's joy, that, that God has done this once for all thing. Never, he's never going to go back on it where he imputes to you the freely the obedience of Jesus and, and accepts you as his beloved, righteous, forever child. And that's to be the foundation of the believer's joy. Now, that foundation um, is the subjective experience of gospel truth if you receive it. It doesn't work 
sort of all by itself. Uh, um, you, it's, it's like um, when Jesus would, was, was, was about his ministry, right? Some people went leaping and dancing and praising God. And other people uh, went away mumbling under their breath. And what was the difference? They both saw Jesus. They both saw the things that he did. The difference is the man who went dancing and leaping and praising God is the man who just been told to get off his mat and walk. The man who just had his eyes opened and blindness gone and the leprosy was driven out and the demons were cast away. They received the activity of God's salvation. And they're the ones, you could tell them by the way they went down the street. The other guys heard the same words, maybe even saw the same miracle. They didn't receive it. And so they're picking away at it. So the subjective experience of joy that Paul talks about is only, it's only for those who actually receive the miracle, who receive the blessing. And Paul is writing as though he uh, believes or intends that every Christian, true Christian, has experienced exactly that. It's very interesting. In Romans chapter 4, there's a, there's a shift in the way Paul talks. Uh, if you read the book of Romans up through our text here, Paul has been uh, speaking Theoretically, he's been like a lecturer and uh, a school teacher. He's got his, he's, he's writing on the back, a blackboard and he's, he's drawing uh, connections and circling important words. But it's all been a bit theoretical. In chapter four, if you have your Bible, you'll notice there's a shift that takes place, a very important shift. In verses 13 and following, he's talking about Abraham as uh, the Old Testament example and evidence that righteousness doesn't come by obedience. Righteousness comes by faith. That's the point he's making. So Abraham is this Old Testament example proving his point of justification by faith. So verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But then you get this beautiful shift. But the words... It was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. You see, Paul's been busy at the blackboard, and he's drawing the connections and circling the words, and here's Abraham, and then he says, and so justified by, uh, credited as righteous by faith alone, exclamation point, but that wasn't just about Abraham, that's about you, that was written for you. These, these things are, are, are for, for us. Jesus, Jesus, you see, was delivered up for, for your trespasses. Jesus was raised to life for your justification. Therefore, since you, we have been justified by faith. It takes that necessary turn towards the personal. You see, it's not enough to believe that Jesus went to the cross. It's not enough to believe all that Paul has said in Romans 1 through 4. You have to get to Romans 4.23. And, and specifically, you've got to get to Romans 4.25. And you've got to get to Romans 5 verse 1. True faith is not just believing that something happened regarding Jesus and something is true about Abraham. 
true faith is that what happened to Jesus and is exemplified in Abraham has happened to me. So the Heidelberg Catechism asks that question, what is true faith? And, and the answer is, is brilliant. It says, true faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed in his word, but also a firm confidence which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also. Remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God. You see how important those words are? True faith is not a generic knowledge of gospel ideas. True faith says, but to me also. And so when the Bible talks about remission of sins, I can say that that's for me also. An everlasting righteousness imputed to me by, by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' righteousness given to me, I can say, but to me also. And salvation, it's, it's not just a gen general salvation of sinners. It's, it's a specific salvation for this sinner. That's true faith. That's the faith that Paul's talking about. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the firm confidence that because of what Jesus did and because of who I am and because of the truth of the gospel and the, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that, that by the marvel of God's grace, we have been justified by faith. That, that is God's gift. We have become those blessed people whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins the Lord will never take into account. We are the people who've had the righteousness of Christ imputed freely to us as a gift. And since God promises uh, to deal with us, now according to Christ's obedience and righteousness, there's no fear of judgment, no fear of death. We have peace with God. We rejoice in conviction of coming glory. Because, you see, it, it, we've come to believe the gospel is for us. It's for me. Friends, that is so essential. If you don't take anything else from the, the message tonight, just take that. Do you have true faith? Where you've come by the, by the grace of the Holy Spirit to be able to say, yes, I am the sinner and Christ is the Savior. And these things happen not just for others, but these things happened for me. Because if, if you really do believe that, then you're going to be experiencing by the Holy Spirit this, this growth in joy. This growth in joy. So Paul speaks, and we'll take to look at these joys together. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Since, therefore, we've been justified. So he's just taking the whole thing, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, and he lays it right in the foundation of justification by faith. There's three things, actually, Paul mentions in these verses that have happened to us. We, because we've been justified by faith, we have peace. We're not trying to get peace with God. We're not trying to make peace with God. We have peace with our God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that he, he is going to deal with us through, always through Jesus, because of Jesus. Never again be the object of wrath, ever, or condemnation. And secondly, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We live in grace. The promises of God are yes to us. You can claim them confidently in Jesus Christ. He does not deal with you as your sins deserve. He doesn't. 
ever. He might discipline us, but he never deals with us as our sins deserve, but always according to his love. And we rejoice, Paul says, in the hope of the glory of God, the conviction that one day we are going to experience the glory of God. And if you, and if you read your New Testament, you realize that, that concept, specific, particularly in Paul, but the concept of, of hope, this deep-rooted assurance that no matter what happens in this life, no matter how awful it might be, there is an anchor for our soul in the gospel that this, this hope that we have, a firm confidence that we win, that God wins in us and for us. So Paul writes in Romans 12 to rejoice in hope. He writes in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God wants his children to be rejoicing in the riches. Not the riches of this world, what are they? They're nothing. But the riches of being a child of God, the riches that are promised to us in a new heaven and a new earth, the riches of having our sins forgiven and the riches of knowing one day I'm going to be robed with immortality. Because what is mortal is going to be put off. I'm going to put aside this tent. And we're going to take up immortality. And we're going to enter into a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And we're going to see our Savior there. And we're going to live with him and reign with him and be wed to him there forever. That's the Christian hope. And, and to live in, in, in that confidence means that we get to rejoice even in sufferings, verses 3 through 5. Not only that, so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but not only that, we also rejoice in sufferings. Why? Why would you do that? Because... <clears throat> Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You see, the rejoicing and suffering, we can have that because we know that not only is our justification the work of God, our sanctification is the work of God. That is really good news. Now, we're, we're called to participate and, and, and to follow and, and pray and lean on the Lord um, and strive and fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we do that because God is God's at work. And suffering is where he does some of his very best work, where he produces, God produces endurance. Suffering doesn't always produce endurance. Suffering sometimes produces bitterness and hatred and despair. But when, but when it's happening to someone who has this hope rejoicing in the glory of God, someone who's confident that I've been justified by faith as a free gift, then, and then you see the, the suffering is God at work in my life producing endurance. And endurance is hard. Endurance is very slow. It's painful. It's, it's like growing fruit. It, it does grow. It produces character. But that's a slow-growing fruit. Character doesn't happen quickly. On the farm, we would have different day corn. 60-day corn would be the, the, the very uh, shortest um, amount of time. You could plant that late, and you could harvest that before the frost. But then you had 90-day corn. And, well, some of us were, you know, we're 70-year corn. It's going to take a while. 
But that's okay. Because endurance produces character, and character produces hope when you realize, you know, God really is at work in me. I'm not the man, I'm not the woman I used to be. God is changing me, and I hope he'll continue to change me, and, and that hope is, does not put us to shame. It does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out through our hearts, through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And when Paul talks about love, he's not just talking about an, an affection, but a divine, eternal affection that is birthed a supreme, loving act. While we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one, someone might be willing to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, notice all the personal pronouns. God shows his love for whom? For, for us. When? When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for me. And then Paul just seals that point by saying, you know, who, would die for a, who would die for the ungodly? I mean, it's hard to imagine someone even dying for a righteous person. I mean, it's possible, but it's not likely. But, but who, would, who would be foolish enough to sacrifice their life for someone who absolutely deserved his condemnation? Someone who is as guilty as, as sin, I mean literally, and deserved everything he was getting. Who would be foolish enough to do that? Well, someone who loved. Someone who loved. Love is the only explanation. It's the, it's the divine motive of your salvation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Only love would, would move someone who had no sin to die for the ungodly. And Paul says God demonstrated his love in this death. God wants you to know the reality of this love. Not just, again, as an affection, but, but as an affection that has given birth to a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is able to rescue, to save, to justify you. All that that cross accomplished is the love of God being poured out by the Holy Spirit as you believe it. As you receive it. And if you don't receive it, you won't be the man dancing down the street. But, but as you receive it, you see, as you, as you allow that Savior suffering there in the cross to be suffering in your place, to be bearing your shame and your sin and your guilt, then the, then the love of God is being poured into your heart by the Spirit as you're, as you're just crushed by the glory of this divine love that knew you before the foundation of the world, knowing, knowing everything, every wicked thing you've, you've done and every horrible thing you've thought, every awful, hateful, uh, soul-damning uh, thing that ever came out of your mouth and God knowing it all and laying that all on his innocent son and placing that son on a cross and pouring out the wrath, the divine judgment on him him and God saying in all of that this is how I've loved you Jesus says in John 15 verse 9 now abide in my love abide in my love Paul prays in 2 Thessalonians 3 5 may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love Ephesians 3 19 he prays that you may know the love by the power of the Holy Spirit that you might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge because friends that Knowing that love, receiving as you receive the glorious truth of justification, you receive all that Jesus did for you and experience the love of God in that. It makes, it makes all the difference for this life. 
Remember a story that Ravi Zacharias told? He said he was ministering in Vietnam in 1971. He met a young man there by the name of uh, Hien Pham, an energetic young Christian. Uh, Hien uh, was uh, working, tra- doing translating work with American Armed Forces in Vietnam and then also working with the missionaries. And so he and Ravi traveled uh, all across the country doing um, ministry and became very close friends. And then um, when uh, Ravi left the country, he said, didn't know if I'd ever see him again. But 17 years later, he, he gets a phone call. Brother Ravi? And Ravi says, I immediately recognized his voice, and, and he and told his story. Uh, after Vietnam fell, this man was imprisoned on accusations of helping the American forces. Uh, the, the jailers tried to indoctrinate him uh, against uh, democratic ideas and, and specifically the Christian faith. So he was forced to read communist propaganda um, in French and, and Vietnamese. And uh, the, uh, he and just says that the daily deluge of, 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 of Marx and Engels um, began to take its toll, and he thought, maybe, maybe I've been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe I have been deceived by the West. And so uh, he determined one day that when he, when he woke up the next day, he would not pray anymore or think of his faith. He would just stop being a Christian. Well, the next morning, he was assigned uh, the dreaded chore of cleaning out the latrine, the prison latrine. As he went in the area where the, uh, the officers used the latrine, uh, they, uh, he found a, uh, a tin can overflowing with toilet paper, and his eyes caught what seemed to be English words. So he, he grabbed it and washed it off. And after everybody else had gone to sleep that night, he pulled it out, and this is what he read. Romans chapter 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, Brother Ravi, I broke down and I cried. I knew there wasn't a more relevant passage in all the Bible than than that passage that God had spoken to me and he cried out to God and asked forgiveness and, and now is thriving as a Christian again in his faith, firm, convinced that God loves him. You see, friends, it's that testimony of the love of God that is our ultimate defense against doubt, against fears. No matter how difficult the path can be, we can know that God has loved me in Jesus Christ. He he loved me, he loved you enough to send his son to bear your judgment and give you everlasting life. He was put to death for your sins and he was raised to life for your justification and nothing, nothing will ever separate you from that love or keep that love from accomplishing its purpose to make you holy and blameless in his sight. You are going to be saved. Paul assures us of that in verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him, by Jesus, from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, how much more now being reconciled shall we be saved by his life? You see, the logic is impeccable. 
The premises are objectively true, and the conclusion is irrefutable. If God was willing to sacrifice his own son, Jesus Christ, for you because he loved you, and that the work of Jesus actually accomplished reconciliation, and the righteousness of Jesus is is actually the ground of your justification, and if God is actively at work now by his Holy Spirit in your life for your sanctification, and if the promise is certain that one day you will experience glorification, well, if that's true, all given to you when you were an enemy, how much more now that you are a beloved child? How much more now that, that Jesus is alive, reigning at the right hand of God? Could anything make this collapse? Could anything make this fail? No, nothing whatsoever. There's an inseparable link between what God has done in the past and what he promises and will do for us in the future, and that link is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus reigning at the right, his, his right hand on the throne of heaven. And so if you have Jesus, you have all of this. Jesus says, he who has the Son has life, everlasting life. And that's why we rejoice in God more than that. Something more. We rejoice in the, in the hope of glory. We rejoice even in suffering, but we rejoice ultimately in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. I think a lot of Christians wrestle with joy. I know I do. And if I think about it, it's usually because I'm not experiencing really uh, joyful circumstances um, or I'm not really feeling close to God. I'm thinking about my experiences, what I feel, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing or not doing. But see, the, the Christian joy was never meant to be rooted in any of those things. The Christian joy was always meant to be rooted in, in this, in, in God. Christ reconciled us to God. Christ brought us near to God. The gift that we've received is not salvation. It's not deliverance from hell. It's not mansions in glory. The gift you receive in salvation is God. God to be your God. God to be your heavenly Father. Forever. To be in his presence. To see his glory. To dwell with his Son. That's objective gospel truth. And it is the fountain for your subjective gospel joy. And so the question for you tonight is, do you believe it? Will we receive it? In the midst of all of our weaknesses, all of our failures, all of our trials, all of our temptations, all of our doubts, whatever they might be, are we willing to just receive the gospel? That this is what God has done in Jesus Christ and he's done it for you. And because he's done this in Christ for you, he will complete the work that he's begun. And that you can have joy, confidence in your hope of glory. You can have joy, confident even in suffering that God's doing a beautiful work. And you can have joy that you have God. You can rejoice in him. May God grant it. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, what astounding truths. Why should we, sinners all, rebels all, why should we have the gift of God? Why should we get to enjoy glory that angels can only imagine? To be the sons and daughters of the Most High God. To be the bride of Jesus Christ. 
to reign with him, to be with him, to know and see his glory, the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world, to enter into the joy of the Trinity. Oh, Father, we're weak, more weak than we know, and have far less faith than maybe we think. But God, we want to grow. And we grow by receiving, by receiving. So God, give us the gift to believe that all these things are incredibly true. And give us the gift, Lord, to believe them in such a way that it transforms the way we think, it transforms the way that we feel, it transforms how we do life. Because we are so blessed. We are so rich. We are so loved. We're so loved. And Father, if there be any here tonight who sense that they don't know these things for themselves, they don't have true faith, they've got historic faith, they've got understanding of gospel truths and teachings, but they've never danced because they've never received it for themselves. Oh God in heaven, do not... Do not allow that soul to be lost. I pray that you would give the gift of faith even tonight. That you would do the miracle of conversion even tonight. And Lord, for others of us who thought that the Christian life began with the gospel and then got on to what we could do, I, forgive us for that. And I pray that we would recover our joy tonight as we remember that the gospel, the Christian life is always gospel. It's always rooted in what you have done and what you are doing and what you promise, and that changes everything. So, Lord, build us up as we are rooted and established in this faith, in this love, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.